Hello, and welcome to the November 2008 episode of the Harvard Medical Labcast, science that's changing your world. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs in Boston. I'm David Cameron. And I'm Alyssa Neller. And this month, we'll introduce you to the emerging field of systems biology. First, we'll hear how scientists are using math and computer modeling to better understand human health and disease. Then we'll take a look at how some researchers are using those models to probe the evolution of drug-resistant bacteria. Plus, a new paper explains why scientists have had so much trouble developing a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease. But first, our colleague Veronica Mead-Kelly had a chance to sit down and chat with Peter Sorger, a professor of systems biology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Sorger, could you start off just by explaining in a nutshell what systems biology is? In the way we mean it here, really, I think systems biology has two noteworthy features. One of them is it's an attempt to understand how organisms, the physiology, their responses to the environment, the development of disease, how that actually relates to the functions of individual proteins. And that, of course, has been an interest of molecular biology. But whereas in molecular biology, the focus was much more on single agents or perhaps very small collections of proteins. In systems biology, the aim is to actually begin to describe the activities of hundreds or thousands of interacting sets of proteins. And the second noteworthy feature is it's much more numerically or mathematically sophisticated. Uh, Much of molecular biology is based on a fairly simple kind of genetic logic. We often say it's univariant or it looks for single causes. Uh, Whereas systems biology is much more multivariate, it looks for explanations in the combined effects of many biochemical activities. And from my understanding, systems biology is only maybe 10 years old? Uh, It's come to prominence in the last five years, five to 10 years perhaps, but the aspirations of of a kind of systems biology, they actually go back uh, at least to World War II, if not before. And uh, a lot of the early people interested in information theory Uh, those people were having conversations with physicians at the time with the notion that the then developing ideas of information theory on which really all modern telecommunications is based could be directly applied to studying human disease. And I don't think that that really went anywhere, that the technology was not there. We didn't understand enough about the biochemistry of life. We did not have the human genome. So in the end, 30 years of molecular biology, modern genetics, and the Human Genome Project were the necessary antecedents to systems biology. So it was a concept waiting for the technology to catch up to it. I think that's correct. And it's worth noting that people come to this field of systems biology, which is quite controversial out there among an older generation of molecular biologists and biochemists, from very different perspectives. So The perspective that was prominent in the 1940s was really pushed by information theorists. And these are people who studied things such as the capacity of telephone lines to carry signals, uh, which you think of as a very practical problem, but from which some very fundamental uh, modern physics was developed. But there are other people, myself included, I, I have a degree in biochemistry. We come from a much more of a biochemist's perspective. So what you find is that you actually have quite discordant notions about where the field is going and people coming from different perspectives. And my own view is that lack of unanimity is, is really the creative energy of the field. You mentioned the controversy regarding the systems biology approach. Uh, could you give us your take on the methodology that systems biology uses in contrast to the classic approach? 
my own view of this is that this is simply an evolutionary change. The most radical proponents of the information theoretic approach to systems biology, so this sort of computer science approach, have made statements frequently that we've left behind the era of experiments. And, you know, that's complete nonsense. Uh, biology is, and as with chemistry, will remain an empirical field for the foreseeable future. Instead, I think what you really have is an addition to the armamentarium of molecular and cell biologists in which you simply recognize that when you have multiple proteins working together or multiple genes, human intuition is poor at finding multivariable causation. So we tend to find the dominant trend. And in terms of models for human disease, we're used to thinking of disease in respect to viruses or genetic mutations. Uh, is there any speculation about maybe a systems biology model for disease or some diseases that might have a systems basis? We don't even think about tackling a human disease now without using molecular biology. I feel quite confident predicting in 20 years from now, you won't even imagine tackling such a problem without using these kind of systems tools that we're now developing. To give you a specific example, uh, essentially all of modern drug discovery is based on identifying the so-called target, which is the right. gene which causes disease. None of the diseases that are going to affect you or me, with, perhaps with rare exception, is going to be caused by a single gene. It's going to be caused by a whole spectrum of inherited dispositions and perhaps disease-causing mutation in the case of cancer or infectious agents. So these targets don't live in splendid isolation. And the targeted therapy, the modern paradigm of drug therapy, is fundamentally failing. What we find is that even at the cellular level, what a system's kind of toolbox allows you to take that drug target, put it back into a cellular context, and to understand how inhibiting that one gene product, that one protein, is only going to be the first step in understanding how you, you treat disease. And that's because of the interplay between the proteins and the other parts of the cell? Correct. It's exactly, it has to do with that interplay. And the, the wonderful thing is we can look to engineering systems for precisely the lessons that we're going to learn in biology. One of the wonderful kinds of analogies is if you look at power transmission uh, and you imagine back to those blackouts in the East Coast that eventually culminated in the 70s and the great blackout in New York, the power broadly comes from Niagara Falls at the time and it broadly flowed to New York. And yet the outage that led to that disaster, I believe, was somewhere in Tennessee. doesn't seem like it's linearly on the path, but in fact, if you have a network of wires connecting your house to the power substation, the power flows through that network in a predictable but extremely complicated way. So you can't simply go in and find the hottest wire and make it bigger. Uh, the failure is typically a complex interaction among the components. Complex doesn't mean that it cannot be predicted, understood, and ameliorated, but it means that you can't simply look at it by inspection and say, it's that one thing. And yet we are stuck in that paradigm when it comes to thinking about disease, and specifically, I think, and much more tellingly when it comes to treating it. And I imagine that perspective has colored the way you conduct research? In my case, we simply said that we are fundamentally interested in, in disease processes and in, in specifically in pharmacology. Our aspiration is to revitalize pharmacology through systems biology. And that means we're just going to tackle what we think are the real problems. Why do some patients respond to Herceptin and others do not? How do you develop resistance to drugs 
uh, like Gleevec, and you know, how might you actually mitigate that? So we're going to tackle those problems head on. So even though they are harder and systems tools are therefore that much less effective, we simply start from the position that the problem is more important to us than the tool. Like many graduate students and postdocs in Harvard Medical School's Department of Systems Biology, Jean-Baptiste Michel arrived without a degree in biology, but he brought something else to the table, a deep understanding of mathematics. He joined forces with biologists Pam Yeh and Rai Kishani's lab to tackle a complex problem, the evolution of drug resistance. The question that Pam was trying to answer at this time is how do two drugs interact to accelerate or slow the evolution of resistance? The reason why that is very important is because there are fewer and fewer antibiotics discovered each year, but more and more resistant bacteria each year. Bacteria are finding ways to evade drugs that once annihilated them, evolving resistance at a remarkable rate. The response from clinicians? Fire back with combinations of drugs. At first people start using one drug, but then as a pathogen becomes more resistant, you have to use higher and higher levels. Then clinicians went on to try to um, do drug combinations in order to find different ways to kill the bacteria most um, effectively without going to really high doses that are toxic to humans, toxic to the patient. But these drug cocktails may be contributing to the problem of resistance. Clinicians typically try to find drugs that work synergistically. That is, two drugs kill more bacteria together than either drug would alone. By the same token, clinicians avoid antagonistic drug pairs whose combined effect is smaller than expected. You know, they can't really imagine why we would want to use drugs that you actually need to use more of and have lower killing efficiency. But a Nature paper published in 2007 by the Kishini Lab suggested that antagonistic drug pairs hold an advantage. They seem to prevent drug resistance from spreading through populations of bacteria. Michel and Ye followed up on this finding, examining synergistic and antagonistic drug pairs in more detail. In this particular study, what we measured is something akin to the probability that resistance will evolve. So it's not how fast it will evolve, but it's whether it can evolve at all. The team subjected bacteria to different drug pairs at different concentrations and measured the resulting growth. I joined in. Uh, when Pam was growing bacteria on uh, thousands of plates, and it was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it was a nightmare, <laughs> yeah. So you can, physically it takes room, and, uh, and also it takes time, and it takes a lot of focus to not uh, fail the experiment. Yes, and we so did it many times. <laughs> <laughs> we did it really, yeah, we did every combination of mistake. Yeah, you could possibly imagine. <laughs> Despite some obstacles, the team succeeded in gathering data and building a model to predict the probability that resistance will evolve, given information about a drug pair. The data suggests that synergistic pairs favor the evolution of resistance and antagonistic pairs select against the evolution of resistance. Noem Shoresh, an author on a related study in the same lab with Matt Hegrenis, says the results may seem counterintuitive, but they actually make sense. That's because when you have resistance to one drug, it's equivalent to seeing less of that drug. It does make sense. If they interact synergistically, that means that these drugs help each other to hinder the growth of the uh, bacteria. So uh, if a bacteria becomes resistant to one of them and, he, and it sees less of that drug, it's also taking away some of the um, enhancing effect that that drug had on the, on the other drug 
So it's gaining not only directly from being able to grow faster on one drug alone, but also from the reduced effects of the other. So it may have a larger selection advantage. That means a larger improvement in fitness, and it would spread more quickly in the bacterial population. Robert Mollering, an HMS professor at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an author on one of the papers, explains what the findings mean for the clinic. You'd still like to have the most effective agent in, in order to treat the patient to kill the bugs, but there may well be a balance in here between that uh, and, uh, and preventing the emergence of resistance. And that's, that's what his studies now open the uh, door to uh, look at in greater detail. I don't think it's ready for clinical full-time use at, at the present time. I think what we need to do is to put it into some animals, uh, animal models and other things first, and, and take a look at it. But uh, it's interestingly enough that I talk about it, but it's not defined well enough that we can use it to make definitive clinical recommendations at the present time. Remember those commercials from the 80s? They went something like this. This is your brain. And this is your brain on drugs. Now, while that may be true for certain narcotics, new research has found that when it comes to rodents, well, this is most certainly not your brain. In the first ever study to survey the entire genome for genes that are active in both the mouse and human brain, Bruce Yankner, a professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School, and colleagues discovered that the human brain and the mouse brain age in very different ways. And while this might not exactly sound like breaking news to the layperson, keep in mind that many of our insights into how the brain works, and in particular into conditions like Alzheimer's, come from studying the mouse brain. Yankner and his team found some pretty stark difference between you and the mouse. You see, when you are young, your brain's a lean and mean machine. So when you're figuring out a complex problem, like high school algebra, or even more intricate, how to get that girl across the classroom to notice you, very discreet parts of your brain are working very hard. But as you get older, the genes that make your brain so streamlined start getting a little wobbly. So later, when you're trying to figure out the best way to spend all that 401k money, more of your brain is working less efficiently. And that's important, because scientists have come to realize that cognitive decline is often the result of our neurons becoming too active and too confused, in a sense, overstimulating the brain. But the genetic breakdown responsible for this in you doesn't seem to occur in the mouse as it ages. That may partly explain why, so far, no scientist has been able to faithfully replicate Alzheimer's disease in mice. So where does this leave scientists who are looking into the mouse brain to learn more about your brain? Yankner explains. So we need to have a greater understanding of what is the molecular basis of the aging process that renders us vulnerable to these different disease processes. And once we have that understanding, we can try to replicate by genetic manipulations, some of those human-specific age-related changes in mice. And my belief is that by taking this approach, we will more faithfully replicate the degenerative disorders that go along with human aging. But for now, don't be jealous of the mouse. Many scientists believe that tomorrow's cognitive decline 
may partly be the price we pay for going so long with such a powerful brain. This concludes the November episode. We'll leave you a quote from mathematician John von Neumann. If people do not believe that mathematics is simple, it is only because they do not realize how complicated life is. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs, and we'd love to hear your comments on this program. Visit our podcast website at podcast.hms.harvard.edu and tell us what you think or read what other listeners are saying. Music for this episode was arranged by our colleague, John Ryan. In order to learn more about Harvard Medical School, our academic and research programs, and our affiliated hospitals and research institutes, visit the Harvard Medicine website at hms.harvard.edu.